Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We have on the show today, Tyler, a great guest, uh, Jake Tunnel, Jace Tunnel, from the executive director of the Mission Aransas National Estuarine Research Reserve down on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Welcome to the show, Jace. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Jace, we really look forward to talking to you and learning about uh, these uh, nurdles, these little plastic pellets that uh, are polluting our beaches. And uh, Jace is leading a really interesting effort to survey them and figure out what's going on with that. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Well, everybody, as you know, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today, we have some supporters out there who help make this a possibility. Uh, LJA Engineering, with led by Bill Worsham here in Austin, Texas. Uh, LJA has a very good coastal engineering division, 28 offices on the Gulf of Mexico. If, if you're a city, county, or private party in need of coastal engineering services, get in touch with our good friend Bill Worsham at LJA Engineering, LJA.com. And of course, we'd like to thank our good friends at Coastal Engineering Consultants. Uh, if you listen to our Labor Day uh, special show, you would have heard about the great work that CEC, Coastal Engineering Consultants, has done in Minnesota Key, designing their beach, working with the community, getting all the, the easements figured out. Michael Poff heads up the organization, Outstanding Engineer, CoastalEngineering.com. And uh, Frederic Barisset at Dune Doctors in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, this firm is dedicated to natural dune restoration and shoreline management using native dune plants. They go from concept through permitting and construction. Dune Doctors is the firm. Frederic Barisset is an absolute professional. Uh, give her a call and look them up on the internet at dunedoctors.com. You know, Jace, it's great to have you on the program. Let's just start off and... Uh, Educate our uh, audience a little bit on the history of how you became involved with these little plastic pellets called nurdles. Okay. Well, uh, back in uh, September of 2018, uh, I was at the beach, and I looked down at the high tide line, and there was all these small white pellets uh, in the rack line, which is where the seaweed and all the light kind of floating stuff uh, kind of accumulates uh, when the waves come up. And so I picked it up and knew exactly what it was. You know, it was a plastic pellet nurdle. You know, you can tell the difference between these and, um, say, difference between seeds or sargasm bulbs because these um, are really hard, whereas if it's a seed or something like that, it'll break or pop. And so um, I ended up calling the Coast Guard and uh, said, hey, we've got a spill here. There are literally, it looks like, at the time, when it first happened, I said, you know, there's millions of uh, nurdles here. Somebody's got to come clean it up. And uh, so they ended up calling the Coast Guard, or the, the state, which is uh, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. They came out, um, they took a sample, and then they called me a couple days later and said, most likely this happened during a spill offshore or during transportation, and so there's no way to find a responsible party. So um, they weren't going to do anything uh, more about it. And I said, well, for sure you're going to monitor it, right, you know, because we want to make sure that, um, you know, how long are they going to be around, how far have they spread. And so they said they weren't going to do anything else. And so um, that's when I put a call out uh, to folks on uh, Facebook 
and said, hey, somebody help me, you know, go along and um, kind of monitor this so we can see how these things are moving, how far they've gone and all that. Well, so initially what I did is I had this quadrat where I went down and I placed it on the high tide line and you know it's a it was a half meter quadrat so I could actually calculate how many uh nurdles there were per a certain distance and so we came up with around 300,000 to 1 million nurdles per um mile uh just based on that quadrat and we we uh sampled for 30 miles so there was at least 30 miles that were covered with 300,000 to a million of these pellets uh, in that day in September. Um, and so with the Nurdle Patrol, uh, we wanted to make it easy. You know, not everybody's going to be able to go out and do a quadrat. And so we kind of took a methodology that uh, a group out in the U.K. used when they had a spill, and that was for somebody to go out to any beach they wanted to, you know, whatever beach they're at, and just search for 10 minutes and then they count how many they found and then they send me that data and we're able to put you know these concentrations on a map which then kind of shows or what we're thinking is showing us the uh possible source of where these are pellets are coming from kind of like a heat map uh across the uh, gulf of mexico of course you're focused here on the Texas shoreline, but let's back up a little bit further here, Jace. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a beach advocate, someone who's out there uh, noticing this problem and, and taking matters into your own hands uh, when the state and the Coast Guard couldn't help. You, you, you stepped right up and said, I'm, I'm going to try to figure this out. What, what's your background to, to uh, compel well, you to do that? Um yeah, I, I basically grew up at the beach, so I'm from Corpus Christi and uh, grew up um, doing surveys. My uh, father was a marine biologist, and so he had um, I had hung out with him doing surveys since I was you know five years old, going down the beach. Um, that was back when there was an Ixtoc oil spill, and we would do bird surveys down the National Seashore for 60 miles. You know, so not the typical time at the beach. But as I got older, um, uh, you know, surfing um, all over. Uh, uh, the Texas coast. And then, uh, once I got into college, um, I ended up doing, uh, uh undergraduate and graduate work on, in seagrass beds. And so looking at juvenile fish, uh, recruitment into seagrass beds, but, you know, I was always, um, connected to the water and the beach. And so, um, you know, that's kind of how my career path started. And so I worked from everything from looking at freshwater inflows into the bays and estuaries uh, to uh, restoration of uh, coastal marshes. Um, and then uh, the issue that we're having and talking about now is marine debris. Uh, so we've been working on that for a number of years. And so my experience was, was always with the larger debris and uh, trash coming up on the beaches. But um, this has actually um, turned into, um, you know, now I'm looking at the microplastic stuff that people don't normally see. Um, we consider microplastics anything um, below the five millimeter range. And so these are, these nurdles are kind of on the upper end of that. You know, they're, they're about the size of a lintel, um, but they're still hard to see and hard to tell that there's something that's not, not natural uh, in the environment. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. It's just a background of always being at the beach. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say, uh, uh, Jace, that you came about it quite honestly. Uh, your father, Dr. Uh, John Tunnell, 
at the Heart Research Institute is a bit of an institution in uh, Texas in, in marine biology and in coastal science. And uh, very, very highly regarded uh, coastal scientist, marine biologist in in the state of Texas. Uh, and it sounds like you're following in his footsteps, trying to trying to understand what's going on out in the in the world, in the marine world, and and along the coast, and and maybe doing something about it. And before we do, and I think this nurdle issue is really important given uh, what's happening with plastics around the world. But let's let's give our audience the benefit a little bit of of explaining to them what um, the National Estuarine Research Reserve system is. You're the executive director of the mission Aransas uh, NIR, as, as they call it. Um, tell our audience a little bit about what a NIR is and, and what that does. Yeah, so there's actually 29 uh, NIRs around the country, and um, we're all different sizes. We're, we're place-based, so we all have a certain base system or watershed that we're working within. And so ours here at the Mission Aransas uh, Reserve is actually um, that the name comes from the Mission River and the Aransas River, and then uh, that's where we do most of our uh, research and monitoring uh, in Aransas and Copano Bay, which those rivers flow into. Uh, of course, we work outside of that, but we do uh, research uh, and education, um, and we do that through a number of ways. Um, uh, one is we have uh, coastal training uh, programs where uh, we bring managers in and we we translate the science into something that's understandable and usable uh, to like um, you know resource agencies or mayors uh, you know municipal leaders and so that they can actually make decisions about um, coastal resources uh, you know development and things like that um, and then we have our K through 12 uh, we actually call it our K through gray uh, we're, um, where we have education programs, we bring school kids uh, on site here at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute where we're housed. Um, and then uh, also we go into schools and uh, we, t- we have uh, different programs where we take um, marine science into classrooms. Um, well, it's and a... then we have a... Keep... No, please go ahead. Okay. Well, and then we have a stewardship uh, program, and uh, that that's where we have uh, an animal rehabilitation center under that, uh, where um, uh, we bring in uh, sea turtles and injured birds and rehabilitate them. Uh, and we have, get about 1,500 animals a year uh, into that. And then lastly is our research. So what is key about um, the reserve system is that we all use the same methodologies and the same equipment. And so you can compare what we're doing here at the Mission Aransas Reserve to anywhere in the country. So we all are required to have um, certain types of research, and one of them is water quality. And so whenever a reserve is designated, which we were designated in 2006, uh, we're required to put in these um, water quality monitoring stations. And so we have uh, four of them, and they collect water quality 24-7. And so you can compare us to anywhere in the country. And that's a real valuable tool because a lot of the researchers that come into uh, the reserve to do research, you know, the basis of almost everything is the water quality. So they have that to work from. So if they're going to work on vegetation or the, or birds or fisheries, you know, they want to know what the water quality is. And so we have that uh, as a baseline for them. So it's a really uh, benefit for connecting to new partnerships and, and things like that. 
Yeah, I, I just love the, the the National Estuarine Research Reserve Program. And for all you listeners out there, this is when you're looking for taxpayer bang in the buck. These are federally funded programs, as you said. I think 28 of these is it 28 around the United States. Uh, that yeah, 29. We 29. just got a new one in Hawaii, and okay. I'm waiting to go to on my field trip over there. Fantastic. <laughs> and 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 it's important because we want to talk about people love. They said, why don't we have science based, fact based. Uh, management decision-making processes, uh, the NEAR system is the foundation of that, and at least part of the foundation, where scientists are dedicated to a particular geographic area and study the hell out of it year after year after year. So when proposals for new projects or development or report changes and all of these things come up, you have a base of information. And I think the NEAR system is fantastic. Uh, and uh, thanks for the stuff that you do, uh, Jace, uh, down there. But I think what uh, I want our listeners around the country to understand is that there's something special about the, uh, the mission Aransas near, because this is the the, the summer uh, uh, grounds for the uh, the very endangered in, 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 endangered. Uh, uh, crane population what the hell am i can't can think of it <laughs> not the same but the whooping crane population in the aransas national wildlife refuge right there and i think a lot of the work that you guys do uh, feeds into the into the assessment and uh management of that population doesn't it Right. Yeah. Um, so the uh, Randis Wildlife Refuge is in is within our boundary, and so one of the things uh, we've been looking at uh, over the last uh, five to six years is uh, how different types of vegetation are um, changing the landscape due to sea level rise. And so, um, you know, we've had about a foot of sea level rise uh, over the last hundred years and uh, and warming temperatures. So what we're seeing is we have uh, black mangroves that are uh, coming in and taking over the salt marsh. And so the the uh, whooping cranes, they like the salt marsh. They do not like black mangroves. And so with those black mangroves coming in, it's reducing the acreage that they have to feed. And, you know, these birds are really territorial. And so, you know, the goal of U.S. Fish and Wildlife is to have a thousand uh, whooping cranes. And so if you look at the current property that's available and then you overlay where the mangroves are thought to move into, you know, that really uh, reduces, you know, can we even get to a thousand? Um, and so I, there's a couple of efforts going on now, you know, looking at different properties outside of the refuge and seeing if, um, you know, those can be uh, purchased and not developed. And, um, you know, they have to be large acres and they have to be areas that, uh, you know, the black mangroves aren't encroaching into. Uh, but, you know, to be able to reach that thousand uh, bird uh, limit. So we're, we're looking at veg- not only the sea level rise, so accretion and erosion rates in the marsh, but also uh, the species um, changes, uh, abundance and uh, diversity. Well, you know, that, that's very interesting that you brought up the mangrove encroachment north on along the Texas coast. Um, we've, we've come across that issue in interviewing uh, the outdoor writer for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, Shannon Tompkins. Shannon Tompkins, who, who specifically talked about this change in the, uh, in the, in the ecosystems in Texas along the shoreline. We've got mangroves coming in, which bring, and we've got mangrove snapper. We've also got snook all the way, a snook all the way up to 
uh, up, up into the Sabine uh, system. These and what he said, and he's a he's a journalist. He writes about this. Has been a writer, uh, an outdoor writer for the Houston Chronicle for thirty years. Uh, he was able to say, "Look, this is because of changes in climate." Do you do you see this encroachment of black mangroves? And look, mangroves are considered a good thing in most of the time, but. This conversion of habitat, is that climate related? Is that what your assessment shows? Or are you able to draw that kind of conclusion as a scientist? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, temperatures over time, um, they seem to be rising. Uh, Same with uh, sea level rise. Um, I mean, we know the climate's changing. And, uh, you know, typically what has happened was that we'd have a freeze. And uh, those black mangroves don't like freezes. But we haven't had a hard freeze in, uh, I don't know, it's probably been since 89 or 90, somewhere in there, um, that that had uh, made a big die-off of these black mangroves. And so they've just continued to grow and expand and move north. And so, you know, until we get a big freeze, uh, I think we're going to continue to see that. Yeah, you know, Jace, it's a it's a trend we're seeing all over the American shoreline, but especially down uh, in the Gulf, uh, the more southern Gulf states here along the shoreline, Texas and Florida, uh, where we are seeing this really kind of dramatic habitat change as the mangroves move in and displace uh, the other plant life that used to be there. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that Peter and I and you have the benefit of is we've all been down to this neck of the woods and seen just how big and expansive and complex these these bay systems and back waterways are. But, you know, you're an expert, you're a scientist, you're out there. Do us a favor, do the audience a favor, and just describe the area. Describe the topography, the area. What's it like to be out there? Uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with this area. Yeah, right. Um, well, it's uh, hot and humid. <laughs> Which I guess anywhere on the Gulf Coast. (laughs) A lot of mosquitoes, Uh, Yeah, a lot of mosquitoes. Um, But it's it's real flat, and so we have something called uh, tidal flats here, which are, uh, or some people call them mud flats, Um, and that's where the tide comes up. You know, our tidal range is uh, 6 inches to 18 inches. You know, it's real small compared to, you know, maybe the East Coast or West Coast. and uh, so just any little elevation at all, you start seeing um, changes in the vegetation type. And so you might go from a low marsh to a high marsh in just 12 inches, you know. Um, and and so we have everything from uh, salt marsh uh, to oysters to seagrass to tidal flats um, and then high marsh. And then you have uh, some oak trees that are coming out on some of the peninsulas, so kind of little forested areas. And it's all within um, just a, a couple of bay systems here. And so what's amazing is how many different habitat types we have just in, in one small area. And I think that's why uh, we were actually designated was because of uh, the lack of um, development in the area and uh, uh, the river systems, I mean, are fairly natural. You know, there's no uh, barriers on them. Uh, so the water can flow freely and uh, just the amount of different types of habitats we have all in one place. Yeah, well, and I guess this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, to bridge in this idea of the nurdles. So uh, help us understand where nurdles uh, originate. 
Okay, so myrtles are plastic pellets, and they are the they're called primary plastic. So this is the the product that is made uh, and then shipped around the world to be melted down, uh, put colors in them, and make make it into an actual product like a, a water bottle, your phone case, your sunglasses. I mean, anything plastic. And so the, the myrtles are the first uh, thing that is made before a plastic product is made. And uh, who manufactures these, and are, is there a manufacturing center on the Texas coast? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, manufacturers um, along the um, Gulf Coast. And the Gulf Coast, if you look at, and I don't have a map of the entire United States, but I have mapped out the manufacturers uh, along the Gulf Coast, and the majority are around the, the Houston area. How many are we talking about? Uh, of course. Um, uh, there's probably uh, 25 uh, manufacturers total. Of course, some of those are uh, companies that have multiple manufacturers, uh, manufacturing facilities. So, uh, and I'm not going to, because one of the things with Nerdle Patrol is we don't point out um, the, you know, the actual manufacturers. That's the, what we do is we collect the concentrations, we put them on a map, and then we we supply that information to the state and federal agencies that are in charge of the environment and uh, permitting these folks. And then they can, you know, that's their job is to be able to uh, find out where they're actually coming from. And that's a that's a good bright line. You are clearly in the science side of this and the data collection side, not an enforcement organization or a regulatory organization at the near. Uh, but I can tell you, it's interesting, folks out there. If you Google up the Port of Houston and you look at the number one uh, ex- uh, export product from the port, it is not oil and gas. It is plastics and resins and. Uh, I don't think people realize that about the Port of Houston. It's a major manufacturing area for petrochemicals and plastics. Uh, And again, I'm not shooting arrows at the Port of Houston either, uh, but that is the case. So these things look like a lentil. I think that's, I was trying to think. It's like the perfect description, a little bead. It's a little bead. And I was thinking, what size? It's not a bit smaller than a bread box, but it's a lentil. It's a, and they're generally white uh, or clear. Um, and I would imagine, how are these things transported? Do you, what are they, big bags of it? Do you t- fill a container with, an, with nurdles? How is it moved around once it's produced and it's going to be shipped to China or where it's going to ever be, going to be shipped around the world to, as you say, be converted yeah. into a bottle? Uh, how, what is it? Yeah, all, all of the above, uh, all what of you that. just said. So, so uh, the manufacturers put them in these big hoppers, and then they have these big tubes that connect to rail cars. So there, yeah. there's, I can tell based on Google Earth if they're a manufacturer or not based on the rail cars they have. So they've got uh, these rail cars that are non-pressurized, and uh, they have four connectors on them at the bottom, and they hook that hose up to them, and um, that's that's when the nurdles get on the ground is when they hook the hose up or they take it off oh. uh, or that's that's one way oh. uh, the other thing is they hook them up to trucks a uh, similar type way and they blow them into the trucks um, and oh, then okay. they also bag them up and they put them on pallets cellophane them up put them in cargo uh, holds and then put them on ships and ship them all over the world wow and so um, 
uh, how the pellets get on the ground is in that uh, process of putting them in, you know, a rail car, truck, uh, in, in bags, tear, things like that. And then actually during transportation, you know, these things are so lightweight that the wind can just carry them off if the if the uh, vessel they're in uh, isn't screened up correctly or, um, you know, there's a hole in it or something like that, these pellets can get out. And then once they get to the actual factory where they're going to offload them and uh, melt them down into an actual product, uh, there's another chance for them to get on the ground. And so, you know, we don't just look at the manufacturers, but you got to look at the transportation uh, companies. you got to look at the, the factories that are melting them down and making them into a product. Uh, and so there's multiple ways for them to get out into the environment, which is uh, which makes it harder to find where the source is. Okay, this is very interesting. So I, I had in mind when I was starting to look into this uh, uh, Nurdle expedition that you just completed to to survey the Gulf of Mexico and find out where these things are. Uh, I thought, gee, what, what, like a container fell off a ship and it burst in the ocean and all that. That's really not what you're saying. These are these are uh, sort of spill products up on in the tr- basic transportation and, and chain of custody of this product. Boy, doesn't it? Boy, my, my first thought is that's got to be a tracer for stormwater. I mean, <laughs> these, you know, people throw, throw uh, you know, plastic ducks into the ocean to t- track currents. And if, boy, if you had the information, it could tell you a whole lot about about uh, non-point source pollution because it's basically a tracer if you could if you had the data, isn't it? Right. Well, so that's the thing is that uh, <clears throat> you know I think a lot of people think, oh, well, this is something another country um, you know is letting these out, or it's from a big spill off a ship. But what we're seeing from the data that's been collected is that there's really high concentrations in the base systems that actually have the the majority of these manufacturers. And um, so I think that that the data um, it, it has answered a lot of questions, and I think the more data that's collected will just refine that even more uh, to hopefully finding the source. Yeah. So that's my uh, next question. Here is that you. Uh, you're finding these things all over uh, Texas beaches, in large numbers. Uh, I understand that earlier, uh, earlier, I guess early May, uh, some were discovered in Florida, uh, in the Tampa Bay system, um, and at least on the newscast that I saw from Tampa, they seem to uh, suggest that those. Uh, nurdles had come all the way over from Texas. Uh, is are these traceable at all? Are there? Is it possible to identify just by looking at them or by going to the lab and doing a sample, uh, narrowing down where they might have originated from? I know you're not interested in pointing fingers, but just from a simple "where did it come from?" question. Well, I've had uh, manufacturers, um, and I've talked with multiple manufacturers. Uh, one of them asked me to uh, collect some nurdles off the beach, and so I got about 250 of them from uh, to give them. And uh, he said that they have an R&D facility uh, up in the middle of the country that they could send it to, and uh, just they wouldn't do any chemical analysis on it. They could tell whether they made them or not just based on the shape and size because of the extrusion process uh, to be able to make these things. And so, um, and then I've also heard that, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's 
proprietary recipe uh, for making the product. So you think, you know, there's so many manufacturers and they're all making a similar type product, but some are touting that theirs is, uh, you know, more durable in sunlight or, you know, it's got these other qualities. Um, so, yeah, there should be a way to be able to um, chemically, uh, any, any additives and stuff that they add in, there should be a way to chemically um, tell the difference. But it's all proprietary, so, you know, regulatory agencies don't have that information. So the ones they found over in Tampa, you know, there's no way to say, um, w- you know, whether those were from Texas or not. I mean, they, people are finding these things, these nurdles all over the world uh, on beaches, Um um, so, you know, the, the, that's what's so cool, I think, about these maps being collected is that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, the ones we're finding in Texas, if you look at the way the currents work, uh, it makes total sense that uh, at least the ones we're finding in Texas might have actually come from Texas or the Mississippi. We took samples a couple days ago when we were um, traveling back from that Nurdle expedition in Baton Rouge, right before we went over the Mississippi River. We went down under the bridge there and uh, found 73 Nurdles in a 10-minute period on the Mississippi River. So that tells me that whatever manufacturers are upriver, um, and I don't have the maps or know who, who the manufacturers are up there, but... Within that small little stretch, we found that many in a 10-minute period. That could be a, a major source for uh, nurdles coming out into the Gulf of Mexico as well. Hmm. So for the listeners out there, if, you, if you're at a computer and you're listening to this podcast, uh, go on Facebook and uh, search for Nurdle Patrol. It's N-U-R-D-L-E Patrol. And join uh, the Nurdle Patrol Facebook page because on that page you will actually see the photographs of what these things are. And uh, uh, Jace, this is a citizen science initiative where you're asking people to go out and sample for you in a 10-minute period, make a collection, note where they are, and provide that data to you. And take pictures. And take pictures. And there's tons of great pictures on here of what a Nurdle is. And yeah. I got to tell you, let I, me just jump in here really yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. There's also uh, on YouTube, there is some really great, there's a, Jace is actually doing a an instructional how you can do it. <laughs> and I watched that and I've really quite clear, takes 10 minutes. It's a great thing to do. Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you, I, I've been going to the beach for a long time and I've seen these things in the rack line there. And I did, and, I, and I've seen these and I thought, you know, what is that? Is that a sargasm float? I don't know. It's too firm. It doesn't break. It doesn't look organic. What the hell is it? What are these things? And I've always wondered, but I never knew that that was a nurdle or a primary plastic product that was being shipped and moved around the, the United States and ends up in our bays in our estuary. So before I really want to hear about the expedition, the Nurdle expedition that you just completed that I understand went from Texas over to Florida. But here I got a couple of questions I want to know about these damn things. One, is it a regulated Now this is a regulatory question, but is it a pollutant? I mean, it's not a is there a is it even regulated number one and I and I don't know if you know that or not. And number two, even if it is what's bad about it so you got this little plastic bead sitting around floating in the water tell us what it why that is a concerning thing uh to have in in our near shore waters 
Well, the biggest uh, issue uh, with them is uh, to wildlife. So, um, you know, they look like a natural food source, and so wildlife eats them. And so what we know eats them for a fact is uh, birds, uh, sea turtles, and fish. So there's been uh, lots of studies uh, that have shown that. Uh, what we don't know is if the toxins that are absorbed into these uh, plastic pellets uh, actually transfer into the food web, uh, so in the food chain. So, so, you know, if a fish eats a nurdle and there's PCBs uh, that have absorbed into these pellets, you know, does that end up getting into the muscle tissue and then into humans? That link has not been made yet. Uh, but there are studies that are going on right now looking that, at that exact thing. And that's, you know, these things absorb um, various types of toxins, and we've done studies, uh, preliminary studies here at uh, uh, the university uh, showing uh, uh, four different um, PCBs uh, that have been absorbed into it. Um, uh, the next step is seeing, you know, if that is transferred into muscle tissue. Now, the other issue is not just toxins, but with um, ingestion. And right. so, you know, these things don't have any nutritional value or anything. So uh, if an animal uh, eats enough of them and for some reason they get lodged in their gut and they can't pass them through, there is a possibility of uh, starvation. Right. And, and I've, so, you know, mm-hmm. and I've seen there's a know, lot of... Uh, there's a lot of studies that have been done. Uh, the EPA came out with a report, actually, uh, uh, pl- Plastic Pellets in the Environment, Sources and Solutions. This was in 1992 they came up with wow. this, and, and they listed out how these nurdles got into the environment. They listed about 80 different species of birds that ingested them. Uh, they talk about necropsies that were done on turtles, uh, sea turtles. Um, and out of all the ones necropsied, you know, there was 9% of them had nurdles in their guts. And so, you know, the, the documentation goes back decades uh, in knowing know that. that there was a problem. Well, I think it's quite right that the, the direct actual physical consumption of a plastic pellet, which, as you said, if it doesn't pass through the gut of the animal, uh, begins to uh, collect and in the animal and occupies their digestive tract. And they, I see this a lot when dead birds or animals are found and they do the necropsy and they open the animals up and they see how much plastic is inside the animal. Uh, This particular pellet, because of its size and shape and how it appears, looks food-like. And uh, I guess the bottom line is, even though the toxic transfer and sort of food chain analysis that you talked about, that linkage and the research on that linkage is still ongoing, uh, yeah, eating a bunch of plastic is not a good deal. I think we can say as a common sense matter without a bunch of uh, studies that uh, this is a negative impact on the environment. I'm surprised to hear that these damn things have been studied and identified as an issue back to 1992. Damn, that's 25 years ago. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, You know, and a lot of the ones that we're finding now we think could be decades old. You know, a lot of the white ones that you find, uh, those eventually turn, it's a resin product. So like your surfboard or something like that, if it's in the sun, it's going to start turning yellow. So a lot of the ones we find are, you know, turning yellow. Um, and so, you know, some of these we're finding, they're, they're probably not brand new, um, although some of them look brand new, but some of them are probably old. Uh, so it's it's a 
problem that's been happening for a long time, and I think it's one that is still happening because some of the one of the things we always ask the surveyors is, did you find it at the new? Did you find all these at the new high tide line, or were they up by the sand dunes, or right. you know further away? Because if they're if they're at the new high tide line, that means that they're floating around out there and they're just now coming up. So right. that we consider that a new event, and. Um, you know, last month uh, when the data came out, about 50% of the uh, the data that came in was at the new high tide line, which tells tells us you know this is uh, still occurring. Recent you know, this stories. that those aren't they could be old nurdles, but this is something that's continually happening. There's always nurdles coming in. How long does it take these things to degrade? Um, there's been studies done um, by our colleagues over here um, at the university across the bay, and uh, they put nurdles out uh, in the water for uh, over 400 days, and the polyethylene pellets, which is the plastic that we're finding the most of, of these nurdles are, um, they, uh, after over 400 days, they looked exactly the same. They had not uh, been eaten by anything. Um, they did have some uh, you know, algal growth on them. But um, other than that, they looked exactly the same. So, I mean, in your and I, your eyes lifetime, um, they, they're not going to go away. And, you know, the, I mean, obviously, right. Cause we all know that uh, plastic takes a, a long time to break down. And these little things are kind of, you know, I, I imagine that if you had a, just the shape of them is kind of durable uh, in a way. They kind of roll around. Uh, it's not like a flat thing that would get chipped off and the being in the sand. They kind of roll around out there in the sand. And, of course, they float on the in the water, I believe. Uh, and uh, so they'll that's why they'd get washed all the way up to the top. But that would also means that they're not getting bashed around on the bottom of the, uh, you know, in the sediment and stuff in the in the. Uh, wave area of the of a beach so you know it, it it seems like these are really a long-term problem i mean there's really no way i i can't imagine there's any way to go out and try to meaningful i know that your the, your effort is not to like go and get them off the beach of course you would but it's really to like figure out how many of these things are out there and where they are right yeah to try to stop the problem um you know the one of the the crazy things is too is that uh, these polyethylene and polypropylene are the the two plastics that we're finding most of. Uh, we're finding the low density ones, so these are ones that float. So we're not finding the ones that sink. So you know, a lot of your your single use plastics and things like that are the the low density ones that float. So a lot of the other types of plastic um, are sinking ones, and we don't we don't find those. So who knows how many of those uh, are out there? And those would be at the bottom of the bay. Boy, um, this is or ocean. Jace, this is a little depressing. I have to tell you because it's the kind of problem I don't. Uh, this is a source control issue. You have to, you know, if if the government were going to act, if there were a regulatory program or an enforcement effort made. The only way you're going to deal with this is to go to the source of where they occur, which is why your work is important, and try to turn that spigot off. But the do you do, when y'all are sitting around the lab talking about and collecting this data, and I guess people send you photographs and data all of the time. Uh, 
how much, I mean, are there tons of these things, thousands of tons of these things in the water, in the marine environment? I guess if they last for as long as you say, I've got to think that this, I was about to say this shit is everywhere, <laughs> but I got to think like this shit is everywhere. I mean, uh, how much is it? I, I And because I, you can't pick it up. I mean, I mean, you couldn't possibly go through the Aransas Bay system or Copano Bay with a, you know, what, what you would do with a colander, a little dip strainer, and just sit there in the marsh and scoop them up one by one. This is an impossibility. Uh is there a? I mean, do you have a number? How much stuff of this this crap is, yeah, is they, all over the damn shoreline? Well, they estimate um, um, about sixty-five uh, billion nurdles are released to the environment annually. And annually comes from. Wait a minute. Annually, annually sixty-five yeah. billion, not manufactured, that are spilled in individual get, pellets. Come on. Yeah, and they, these aren't uh, peer-reviewed. Um, where I got that uh, number from, but this is off of the the UK has a, a, a site, the Great Nurdle Hunt, and so they've got some literature on there. And uh, you know, scrolling through there, you can find all kinds of things. Um, but they do have uh, numbers that they estimated back in 1992, and I don't have those uh, with me exactly. But you know, there's been some effort to try to see how many of these are actually getting out into the environment. And, you know, uh, polyethylene uh, production uh, in the U.S. is going to almost double over the next three years uh, because of the demand uh, for plastic. And so, you know, there's there's I have a a chart that has about 12 different companies on there that are either going to be brand new facilities coming online or expanding. And 75 percent of those companies are uh, within Texas. And so, you know, they've got the, the fracking uh, that's giving them the materials they need to be able to produce these things in high volumes uh, for really inexpensive. And so uh, this is going to be a growing problem. And so one of the things that, um, you know, I have a, a list serve that the folks that send me data, I have their, their email, but I also have the email of state and federal agencies and industry folks on there. And everyone's blind copied. Once a month, I send this email out with the stats. And, um, you know, one of the key things I put in there is um, besides how many um, nurdles are collected and all that, but, um, you know, is... Uh, what industries are are still getting involved with the uh, operation clean sweep um and so that is a the american chemical council came up with a program a couple of decades ago that's a voluntary program but it has in there uh, all kinds of um uh, best management practices on how to handle pellets so everything from uh, you know, I was talking to you about hooking the hose up to the rail car, you know, so there's a bucket that you put underneath uh, where the bib uh, hooks up and comes off to be able to catch the nurdles. It's uh, a high-tech world we live like, in. Like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, low-tech solution yeah. here for a for a very uh, serious environmental problem, it seems like. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, I noticed uh, on Facebook we were doing a little research for this show, and in the just today, uh, you posted a uh, thing. I believe it was today about uh, biodegradable plastics, and I mean, this is Jace. I mean, we we were at EarthX, we were at the International Ocean Film Festival. 
um, the health of our coasts and oceans and plastics and how they end up in there and how they're impacting our coasts and oceans. This is like a big time theme right now. Um, it's gained a lot of steam. Uh, obviously, uh, we're all familiar with the straw ban movement. That's kind of expanding. Um, so there does seem to be some um, resonance in the world, at least certainly in, um, along the American shoreline, uh, with the idea that we need to be better with how we manage our plastics. And you posted a thing about using avocado pits to, to have some right. sort of biodegradable plastic. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, people are always trying to come up with uh, new ways to be able to um, still have a myrtle, but have it um, used in a way that is uh, biodegradable. Because the problem is, you know, all the infrastructure set up to date over the last 70 years is set up for myrtles to be able to produce uh, products. And so, um um, people have come up with different ideas, you know, whether it's um, uh, other types of plant material and things like that. But this company had come up with uh, using avocado pits. And so I know some people had uh, joked about, um, you know, they're going to be eating uh, guacamole now. And uh, I just reminded them that you always got to have margarita with you, too. <laughs> Classic Texas style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what it's going to take is, you know, um, we're, plastic is going to be here. It's, it's not going anywhere. Um, there's a lot of good uses for plastic. Uh, we just need to try to phase out the single-use plastic, and that's where some of these creative ideas uh, would be helpful is, uh, you know, these avocado pits or other plant materials that people are um, uh, making into, like, this polymerized uh material that could either be ingested uh, or broken down over time and also just good old-fashioned safe handling practices like put the bucket out underneath the hose like you were talking about or mm. for all of us out there if you're at the store or at a fast food restaurant and you don't need a piece of plastic don't take it just don't use it eliminate that risk from your life and if we multiply that out by everyone or at least the vast majority of us we can actually make a difference Right, exactly. Um, And, you know, you go to a restaurant and people automatically put the straws down, you know, say, well, I don't need that straw. And uh, or if you're at the grocery store, I don't need that bag. You know, it's as easy as that. I go every once in a while, I'll forget my reusable bag, uh, but I've got a grocery card. I said, just fill my grocery card up. I'll just put it in the backseat of my car. You know, you don't need a you don't need a bag. <laughs> well, refuse. It's, That's how we're going to get around all this. Well, and uh, uh, here's the here's the wildest thing. Uh, Twelve months ago, eighteen months ago, I was not really up to date on the plastic thing. I mean, I knew about the straw ban. I I was certainly sympathetic. I knew plastic was a problem. Um, I have been educated from doing these podcasts, from interviewing people, from seeing documentary films, from talking with people who have been in in remote parts of the world i mean goodness it was just what a couple weeks ago that we saw footage from the deepest uh the marianas trench and there's a damn plastic bag on the bottom are you kidding me no yeah that was on in the marianas trench and uh yeah i think jace it's it's a it's an issue that uh i really think challenges people's capacity to open their mind up to one more thing they have to think about in their life you know we're asked to understand a lot of problems and to think about how we act and behave and 
Yeah, I was a little bit like Tyler. Uh, the first time I heard about, you know, nurdles and things, I'm like, it can't be that big of a deal. I mean, come on, this is... But then you, you dive a little bit deeper, you start to learn, and you become educated and more aware. And uh, obviously, the nurdle patrol work you're doing by engaging the public specifically and uh, accumulating the data is what is essential for people to understand the magnitude of this thing. And, uh, you know, like you're saying, plastics are not going to disappear on the planet Earth, but damn it, we could be a little less sloppy. I think uh, that's what right. I think. It's, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's what uh, Richard Attenborough had to say in his presentation on where the state of the planet recently. It's like, we could just be a little less sloppy and messy. And do we have to be, you know, do come on, we could tighten this up and, and efficiencies and not and be better on energy and on material and what we acquire and buy. Um, but before we get too far uh, down, I mean, we, we obviously I really appreciate the background and the discussion, but I want to know about the expedition and uh, that, that occurred over the last, what, six weeks or so. I mean, tell us when it started and from where. And you guys got in a car and went beach to beach along the Gulf shoreline. Talk to us about the Nurdle expedition. Yeah, so uh, we called it uh, Nodal Expedition Filling the Gaps. And so uh, since November, uh, when Nodal Patrol started up, we had, um, you know, a lot of volunteers sending in data from uh, places that you would expect. And so these are areas um, that are by big cities and that have beaches and things like that. But there were some big gaps in the data that we just didn't have any information on uh, concentrations of nurdles. And one of those was Louisiana. So there was nobody in Louisiana uh, collecting any data. Um, and so our thought was, well, we'll go somewhere. Uh, we'll take eight days, and we'll leave Corpus Christi, and we'll drive all the way to Key West, and we're going to go out to Fort Jefferson. And we're going to try to sample every 10 to 30 miles of accessible shoreline on the Gulf of Mexico. And um, that's what we did. And so from in the early in the morning when the sun was coming up, we were on the beach. When the sun was going down, we had our uh, phone lights on the uh, beach uh, trying to get that last survey in. So we ended up um, doing 124 surveys at 65 different beaches, uh, driving over 3,700 miles. And I think that these, these maps that are going to come out um, hopefully by next week um, are really going to show a better picture of what's going on in the Gulf uh, with, uh, in terms of nurdles and the concentrations we're finding. Um, and I would call this sort of a rapid assessment. We also did seven, so every single day we had uh, community surveys, so we would meet people within the communities and, and show them how to do the surveys and collect data with them. And then uh, there are three other reserves that we gave uh, presentations at, and some of them, you know, we had close to 50 people at some of those. And so those are kind of the new citizen scientists that uh, should start sending data in, uh, hopefully by this weekend. Okay. We just got finished a couple. We just got back a couple days ago, so it's all fresh. <laughs> well, look, I got one final thought on this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot this around to the optimistic side because first of all, that expedition is awesome, and what a cool thing to do! What a cool way to just see that whole shoreline and with 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 kind of a, a defined frame behind it. I think that's really great. But the other thing is, and of course, everyone is gonna go onto Facebook, and you're gonna become a member of the. Uh, Nurdle Patrol group, 
Uh, it's a good follow. It's interesting. And what you'll realize right off the bat is that the attitude in the group is really positive. People kind of enjoy going out there and doing these studies, these citizen science surveys. And uh, it's a positive atmos- atmosphere. And <clears throat> I think there's really something to be taken away from that. And is that, sure, you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're depressed uh, about the future of, of our, you know, the proliferation of plastics in the environment, uh, can't blame you for that. But you can go out and do stuff that takes you to the beach, a beautiful place, and you can spend 10 minutes doing this survey yeah. and feel better about the situation knowing that, by furnishing this data and by mapping the stuff out and by sharing your pictures with this community, uh, not only are you contributing to the science part, but you're contributing to the actual community spirit that is uh, kind of behind all this. And that's a really cool thing about the American shoreline, Peter. Oh man, it is. And, and Wes, if I'm, if I was taking my five-year-old down to the beach and, and the kind of uh, process and, and data method, collection method that you're talking about would be very suitable uh, for all the people headed to the beach this summer uh, how do how do they become part of this and can you help like if you're a parent out there and you're going to take your six-year-old and you say you know what we're going to do a nurdle survey when we go to the beach this summer help them understand how that could happen and how do their how does their data come into your system so, um, you know, that's what's the beauty of this thing is everybody's going to the beach and, um, you know, th- they see plastic and they're like, who would do that? And so this is an opportunity for them to collect data and put it towards something that's hopefully going to be making a difference. And so what we ask people to do is you walk down to the water line and you look in the high tide line and that's usually where you see sticks and you might see other little bits of plastic and things like that and you're looking for those little nurdles um and then once you find your first one you start your clock and you count for 10 minutes on how many that you pick up and um, then you just email me the data you say how many you found where you were at and how many people you're with and the day you were there um, and then that's that's enough information for us to be able to put uh, your data on this map. And, uh, you know, people ask us, you know, what do we do with the nurdles afterwards? Well, uh, you know, some people make artwork and they'll uh, take pictures and put them on the Facebook page or they put them in a glass jar so that they can show their friends and tell them about it. Uh, or if they don't want to do any of that, just throw them away in the trash. So, you know, dispose of them properly. Well, you know, and there's also a very cool T-shirt. I got to tell you, I love the T-shirt. You guys, the Nurdle Patrol T-shirt. Can people buy those? And does the revenue go to help your organization? Uh, How do you get a Nurdle Patrol T-shirt? Well, if somebody wants um, the Nurdle Patrol logo, my wife actually put that together, and there's four different iterations of it. They just send me an email and uh, I'll send them the PowerPoint and they can make their own shirts. And so I've had about 10 different groups contact me for that, um, that shirt logo and I just send it to them so they can make, make and print all their lo- all the shirts up they want uh, for their volunteers. Wow. Now there's, there's, a, there's a fundraising opportunity there, James, that I know as a scientist, it's right. not your focus. But uh, so you'll hand out the, uh, the digital uh, logo, Nurdle Patrol, and uh, I'm telling you, for all those nonprofit executive directors out there who 
who deal with this kind of things and can put together a t-shirt deal and share the money with the Nurdle Patrol and with Jace's organization so they can do do this work. Somebody step up and help out because I know that the, the National Estuarine Research Reserve team is not is not <laughs> built for that. But somebody could help you out there and they should, damn it. This is a, this is important. And I, I think that the And for the parents out there who are planning to go to the beach and you're trying to help your kids understand, you know, what the rack line is and what things happen. And on the beach, there's so much to know here by simply picking up these tiny little pellets, these lentil size pellets and uh, the chance to be uh, to get your picture, put it on the website. I mean, this is such a great idea. And it's uh, it's well beyond uh, simply an awareness campaign. This is actually data that is essential to understanding the magnitude of the problem. And you're working with Dr. Jace Tunnel and the whole team at the NEAR. I mean, come on, folks. This is a great chance to get with your kids. Give them something really interesting to do when you're at the beach. Uh, join the Nurdle Patrol. I'm going to make the pitch for you, Jace. It's a great idea. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things we have coming up is uh, nurdlepatrol.org, and we're hoping that that will go live in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. Um, But that will be a chance. It'll be an interactive Google Earth-based mapping system that people can put their data in and see it immediately uh, on on their beach that they collect. And so people will be able to print up their own maps of their beach and their state and all that and be able to give their own presentations. We want to make this as easy as possible for people to take and and use it to to make a change. All right, I'm going to make a pitch here to our Texas Land Commissioner, George P. Bush, with the annual Adopt-A-Beach Trash Pickup Program at the General Land Office, which has been collecting data and information for decades now. Damn it, the General Land Office needs to start doing NERDLE surveys as part of the Adopt-A-Beach Program. Uh, That would be a great help because they've got that organized uh, outreach effort to get out there and pick up trash on the beach of all types, not just plastic. Uh, and uh, Jace, as we get, come to the end here, um, you just did a drive of 3,000 miles. You stopped at uh, the Gulf Shoreline beaches every uh, 30 miles for thousands of miles. Uh, tell us what your impression is. How does the how does the Gulf Coast shoreline look to you? Uh, what's your level of concern or hope or, you know, what was your impression having just busted your butt and driven 3,000 miles? In Great question. <laughs> two weeks. What did you see? Well, uh, one thing is uh, every single beach was different. And there are some really beautiful beaches along the Gulf Coast. And, uh, you know, I grew up here in Texas and thinking that this was this is the, the be all. And it is. I mean, it's beautiful beautiful too but you know you get around to um, the west coast of uh, florida over there and the watercolor changes and uh, the beach profile changes and the vegetation changes you know i'm a biologist so you know <laughs> i always look at uh, the surrounding uh, environment um, but they have very little plastic on the beach um, in florida so we did find um seven nurdles at pensacola beach but then we found nothing until we only found one nurdle at st pete beach and then none other until you got to the keys and once you got to um isla morada you started finding them again all the way down and even at fort jefferson um you know in the gulf down there um but 
you know, uh, you find the highest concentrations in Texas, and they're they start tapering off uh, after Alabama. They start going down, and then once you get to Florida, you almost don't find any anymore. Wow. But again, they don't they don't have any manufacturers, and the currents, um, the way the currents work in the Gulf with the loop current uh, going around Mexico and then the Florida tip. Yeah. Um, you know that that's it makes sense why you're not finding many uh, over there indeed and i'm sure you if you haven't uh the smart oceanographers over at that utmsi and at the heart research institute it is i think current based and it it sort of suggests that we know things come out of the mississippi river and take a right hand turn and head to head to texas uh uh, it's interesting, and I think it, it's like I said. I think it's a little bit of a tracer, but man, we could we could do another hour on just the currents of the Gulf of Mexico and 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 what these pellets may eventually help us understand a, a little bit differently. Um, any closing thoughts, Jay? Well, hold on, hold on a yeah, second. No, Bef- go ahead. Before go the ahead. closing thoughts, yeah, go ahead. Even if you're not on the Gulf Coast, uh, if you're up in New Jersey or New York. Uh, California, do, California, uh, go out and do a nurdle survey and find out if you've got them there. I'm sure Jace would appreciate your data. Uh, it's it's probably probably not going to be on the same numbers as in the Gulf Coast, but who knows? And uh, this is obviously you you've been mentioning the effort over in England. Um, you know who knows what you're going to find, and I definitely think that we should all uh, we should all join the nurdle patrol. I agree. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> and actually, I was in uh, Long Beach in uh, December, uh, California, and there there were just as many on Long Beach as there was in Texas. I was very surprised. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. Hmm. Well, it, you, 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 it does. It it it, it prompts the, the question, where the hell is this stuff coming from? Because we know we've got manufacturing and shipment in the Gulf. Do we have manufacturing and shipment out of Long Beach, which is a significant port on the American shoreline? Uh, you know, it'd be, it just, it, what a great detective story, Jace. I think it sounds very cool, reachable, understandable from, as you say, from the K, th- K through gray, not K through 12, but K through gray, no matter what age you are. This is a great project. Tie in with these scientists out there, folks, and be part of the Nurdle Patrol. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jace Tunnel, the executive director of the Mission Aransas National Estuarine Research Reserve. Uh, great program, Jace. Thank you so much for being on the American Shoreline podcast. And, and uh, we look forward to keeping up. I want to be on your listserv and I want to get the data because I'm going to put it on Coastal News today. So you need to add us to your list. I appreciate it. Tired water, walk up the Sell to build their hotels 